everyone. Thank you so much for watching another episode of the WeVA podcast. I'm super excited to welcome Patrick Lewis to the WeVA podcast. Uh, Patrick Lewis is, I would like to say, the inventor of RAG. It's something we'll talk about in a second. He's the lead author of the original Retrieval Augmented Generation paper. And Patrick has done so much amazing work in the space of uh, natural language processing broadly, I want to say, because the the coverage of all your papers is just so extensive from DPR to RAG to KILT and then, you know, even task-aware retrieval with instructions. There's just so many exciting ideas. Patrick, thank you so much for joining the WeVA podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to, excited to be here. Awesome. So could we dive into this kind of like origin of retrieval augmented generation? I know it goes back as early as like 2019 that you've been thinking about this. Um, I mean, yeah, so, so I think, thank you very much for the, for the, for the intro saying inventor at RAG. I think I'll, I'll, I'll backpedal a bit. <laughs> um, so, I mean, yeah, like, like the kind of idea of, of, uh, getting computers to speak to corpora of text, uh, is super old. Um, and it goes back to like almost as old as kind of computers. So there's kind of some evidence of it from, from the sixties and you kind of have like question answering systems, um, and people kind of, yeah, working on these systems that have the, the kind of DNA of, uh, a model or some kind of computer program, um, trying to access information that's stored in, in an index or a database and then use that to achieve a kind of task or a, a goal. And usually it's framed around question answering and that's changed pretty recently, actually. Um, you know, there's been other, other use, uses for this over time, but like, you know, until very recently, the really, really big dominant way that you'd study this is in, in question answering. And yeah, no, it goes back really, really far and the kind of continuous levels of, of improvement. Um, there are even like, you know, uh, in terms of the intent behind systems, uh, there are like kind of question answering systems from, from, from the nineties, like ask Jeeves was kind of the intent behind ask Jeeves was to try and answer your question and not find you a document so you can find your own, uh, answer. And then if you look at the, the architecture of like, you know, some aspects of how the original IBM Watson, the jeopardy uh, model, uh, worked, it had, you know, similar kind of uh, conceptual underpinnings to this. And then throughout the kind of uh, 2000s and 2010s, particularly the 2010s when neural models came along, the kind of uh, one conceptual shift is like, okay, you can move from having models that kind of pull out and heuristically extract information from text for your use case to having a model that kind of reads it uh, in a more uh, connectionist uh, kind of way. Um, and yeah, those kind of came along, um, a, a bunch of folks kind of looking at these machine readers initially, these um, machine comprehension, machine reading models, and then people hooked them up to uh, retrieval databases. And you had this kind of first big kind of conceptual open domain QA models, I guess they were, they were kind of referred to. And yeah, then it kind of accelerates from there, I guess. Uh, lots of people excited by bigger models, neural models that kind of had their own uh, had sort of a, a, bit, a much a much stronger kind of capability um, and uh, really interesting ways that you can kind of train these things end to end. So all of these things were going on uh, and have been going on um, throughout the you know, the 2010s and before. Um, There's also connections to some kind of parts of semantic parsing, uh, especially end to end, has some kind of similarities. Uh, and yeah, like long story short, like lots of people publishing lots of stuff. 
Uh, but yeah, over the kind of late 2010s and, and, and 2020s, it, a bunch of people kind of realized you could train a, a neural uh, dense embedding uh, retrieval model and a uh, neural reader and get these really compelling kind of systems and you could maybe distantly supervise those things. Uh, and yeah, I guess the rag paper is a weird one because it's sort of uh, very, like very much along that kind of line of, of the zeitgeist that just was there at the right time to kind of knock away a little bit of the conceptual blocker that you could have a generative model that did this. So like a seek to seek model, um, input sequences, output sequences, uh, and retrieve in the middle and just was sort of there at the right time, the right kind of uh, messaging. And it seems to have captured the, the, the kind of um, uh, imagination of people. But yeah, I'm always very careful to try and credit, you know, the, the continuous process of innovation, which is like thousands of, of people over, over many, many decades. You know, I, I think in addition to the paper, you also did this lecture. I think you were in your uh, PhD at UCL and this lecture really explained it. Because, yeah, I think that kind of I think you nailed it with that connectionist perspective. I don't think a lot of people were thinking that you could separate, uh, retrieve and then read. And so this kind of it was just like a really elegant way of forming it. And so kind of the next question I want to ask you about, uh, like, so. So yeah, so so people have running away with rag because we can just kind of plug in these like language models that have been trained for something else. We can just kind of like append rag onto them, right? And and so I thought this paper atlas that you published was so profound with how it shows that with 11 billion parameters, you can still do this kind of like reasoning capability with the retrieval augment augmentation. So I think if we could, if you don't mind talking more about atlas, because I, I think that shows that this kind of uh, RAG has this kind of like economic potential. Yeah, sure. So, um, so in my mind, like, yeah, the, the Atlas paper, um, came together with a bunch of people, uh, at sort of the right time, like, um, people in London that I was working with, um, in the, in the fair office, you know, we'd been looking at knowledge and language models and then, um, Dao Kier and, and Ethan, the student he was working with, uh, were really excited by this paper called Realm that came out and then we sort of applied the combination of our ideas to make that first rag paper happen, but it was quite naive. We kind of stuck it together. It worked. And then we're like, Hey, here we go. This is cool. Let's publish this. And then, um, published it. Uh, I got bored like I often do and then did some other things uh, for a little bit. And then working together with a colleague, um, from fair in Paris called Gautier Isakar and, and his supervisor, Edouard Grave, they'd come up with this really compelling, way of using a um, different kind of architecture for reading uh, with models called, called Fusion in Decoder or FID. And uh, they got really, really good empirical results. And Atlas was effectively our uh, revisiting of the RAG ideas about two years or a year and a half, maybe I think about two years later, uh, applying the uh, really impressive powerful FID model, plus other kind of like stronger dense retrieval models, uh, particularly Contriva, which was um, unsupervised, another thing that, that Gautier and uh, Edouard had done, and kind of uh, combined those ideas together. So like the really, really strong empirical results that came from uh, the new models and the same kind of uh, spirit of what RAG was trying to do, which is this end-to-end -end learning. Um, the thing we didn't crack in RAG um, was how to pre-train these models. And actually that design space is massive, uh, really, really, really big. And the reason you kind of want to potentially pre-train a retrieval augmented model 
comes around the ideas of few shotting and zero shotting and instruction following and, and this sort of thing. Um, you know, otherwise, if you have a bunch of training data and you have a well-defined task, you might as well just, you know, fine tune the thing end to end in a supervised way. And then you, you, that's great. Um, but if you have very, very little data, you don't have enough of your kind of data budget to spend doing that fine tuning. So we were very interested in how to get these, not only, you know, apply the updates and the improvements in, in, in models to the paradigm of retrieval augmented generator models, uh, but also to see how well they could work in few shotting and even zero shotting uh, situations, how you can design them so that they do work well there and how that compares to your kind of now relatively uh, standard run of the mill large language model, which is bigger, uh, but yeah, um, just without this retrieval augmentation. Uh, so that was kind of what we were doing in that paper is really kind of trying to deeply understand that design space, how to pre-train these things, how to do so without any supervision and really ablate that super, super carefully. We were trying to, in some ways, kind of take inspiration from the T5 paper, which again was this kind of like, hey, here's this paradigm. Here's the million ways you could do it uh, and making a fair stab at <laughs> kind of doing as many of those million ways as you can. And it's not our paper isn't quite as big or as, as profound as, as the T5 paper there, but like uh, there are a lot of tables there that kind of assess all these different ways in which you can uh, hook up a, you know, a dense um, unsupervised uh, uh, retrieval system with one of this powerful fusion and decoder architecture and how you can get them uh, to kind of mesh together with pre-training uh, objectives uh, over lots of text and how far, how far that gets you and yet yeah, to what extent knowledge can be decoupled from reasoning and uh, yeah, the kind of sample efficiency and the kind of, I, I don't like the term, but scaling laws um, kind of work for this kind of system as well. Yeah, amazing. So that yeah, that T five paper where they were like, uh, you know, span Bert, mask at the end, and and then it's like, okay, well now what masking probability? Just so many different things, right? And that kind of uh, isolation of that. So I have kind of two things I really want to get your take on, which is uh, the fusion into the import, like two things of the importance of, which is the importance of fusion and decoder. Because right now I think we're mostly just uh, you know <laughs> putting it in the input window and then hoping that works, and then. Uh, maybe we could do one at a time. I don't mean to get yeah, into yeah. it. Well, yeah. Let's let's hit Fusion and Decoder. So um, Fusion and Decoder is a has a number of like really useful things for retrieval augmentation in general. Um, so it has this uh, really nice property. So it has a few nice properties. One is that like it saves a lot of memory uh, over simply concatenating a bunch of documents together in the input to a model. You avoid some of the worst of the, of the uh, quadratic complexity of, of transformers. Uh, and in a way, you can kind of view fusion in decoder as a, as a type of efficient attention mechanism. Um, you could draw a you know attention sparse map, and it would correspond to fusion in decoder pretty much. Um, so it saves memory in one way. Uh, in other ways, it's useful because you get this uh, document invariance, uh, document positional invariance. So uh, all of the documents are viewed by the model as equal. 
uh, and you don't get any kind of biases that come through there. And so that's a kind of nice intuitive way of like, here are the set of documents, observe them all. Uh, there's this nice deep cross attention between the query and the documents. And that lets the very deep contextualization of the two, this bi-directional encoding of the um, uh, cross encoding of, of the documents and, and queries is probably probably fairly important. And you don't necessarily get that bi-directionality if you throw it into like a big linear uh, kind of transformer. Um, and yeah, it's it's great as long as your output sequence isn't very long. Um, and it works well with pre-trained seek-to-seek models. Uh, my view now is subtly different. Um, these are mainly kind of practical arguments, uh, but it's still a very good architecture. Uh, where I'm working now, we're not using it. Um, mainly because of the invention of flash attention. So flash attention and other kinds of like additional kind of model hacks uh, have basically meant that it is no longer a, uh, it's no longer terrible news to have a long context window uh, from a memory perspective. It is a bit from a, uh, maybe from a performance perspective, uh, maybe from a latency perspective, it's kind of worse, um, but it's no longer prohibitive to just like, have a really long sequence. And the other thing is that uh, big standard large language models left to right, uh, GPT, uh, like a la GPT, like everyone's got one um, now, uh, Llama, et cetera. Um, there's so much R&D and so much ablation and so much care going into those and all of the kind of tooling that goes in there, and especially on the, in the open source, uh, it's very hard to bet against that model being better, maybe not because it's inherently better, but because people have worked very hard to make it as good as it can be. And there's a smaller brains trust working on seek to seek models and fusion and decoder, et cetera, et cetera. There's this whole space, like a really exciting design space of models that are somewhere in between, depending on how you kind of draw a sparse attention map. So there's some really interesting research that I poked for a little bit along with, um, uh, an intern called Avi and, and Edouard before I left uh, FAIR uh, that was looking at that and Gautier as well, uh, which is really exciting. We didn't quite manage to make it work, but like I think there's still a lot of interesting things in the in the space of how to process um, documents along with a input and produce an output in an efficient way with the right kind of attention, et cetera, um, for language models. Um, but yeah, from a practical perspective, at the moment, I would say, if you want results, uh, fork out for a long context model and just use a large language model. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I guess I always thought there was something to like putting the embeddings in the middle of the transformer, like in layer eight out of 12 or whatever, compared to just putting it in the input. But I guess you still embed it in the input. So that argument's gone. And flash attention. And we had Ophir Press on the podcast to talk about alibi attention. So a little bit of, you know, we've been looking into this positional embeddings and how that works. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I, and yeah, and maybe just one other nugget that I took out of what you're saying is there's that lost in the middle paper that's talking about maybe. And so it's so lost in the middle is saying like, if the right information is in result five out of 10, then it can't attend to it. Absolutely. Yeah. So fusion and decoder has not, does not have that problem. It's actually invariant to that. So like, the result is 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 mathematically identical. Depend, it doesn't matter where you put it in. There, there is that not that concept of, of ordering, which is really nice. That is a great thing about fusion and decoder. 
I would say um, maybe, yeah, that like that is a an observation based paper. Um, I'm sure I, I I don't look at the literature nearly as much as I used to or as much as I should, um, but I I believe there are ways to combat that empirically. Um, well, some I'm aware of um, where you don't see that kind of problem happening. Um, so the, the retrieval augmented models that I'm, I'm training at Cohere right now, for example, uh, are almost invariant to document position and they are based on standard uh, model. Um, and you kind of have to, you have to just prepare your training data in a very careful way. Um, but yeah, like I think that's a, a bias that kind of comes through mainly from the combination of ways these models tend to be trained, whereby the beginning of general documents that you might need to you know, complete the the end of, the beginning is important and the last few words are important and the middle just naturally is less conditionally important. Um, but if you then fine tune the model to make the middle more interesting, then you can kind of recover from that a bit. Uh, but it is nice to have, you know, um, inductive biases that mean you don't have to worry about that. So that's why those kind of fusion and decoder models that can be can be really good for that. There's also like other ways where you can make them very, very, very fast. One of the, the people I work with at Cohere now, Sebastian Hofstetter, um, has uh, a really interesting paper from, I guess it was a year and a bit ago now, uh, called FidLight, of basically working on, on kind of slight changes to FID uh, that uh, make it really fast and very productionizable. Um, and that's very cool. Like that kind of a uh, thing is really interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, amazing. So we're about 15 minutes in the podcast. And I've already, already gotten a massive takeaway just in that insight. And I have so many other topics to get into. But so, okay. So, yeah, I, I think that's so interesting. But so the next topic I really want to get your take on is RAG end to end, putting the gradients from the reader back into the embedding model and how you're currently seeing that. Um, yeah. So there's many different ways you can do it. Um, the original RAG paper was using a pretty much like initially taking inspiration from a paper called realm uh which uh came came out kind of as we sort of started this project but not really got into the stride of it yet and um they had some like very like simple straightforward marginalization based ways of kind of training a model uh, end-to-end slash jointly kind of depending on how you look at it. But yeah, kind of this nice little probabilistic model with a slight kind of fudge uh, for a top K truncation as opposed to a proper uh, marginalization. And that's really nice. And it works very well for the span-based uh, method. Um, mm -hmm. But so the first thing we did was say, okay, like we can train a model like this with a, with a gener generation model um, very easily, but it's quite slow to uh, decode from. Um, because, so we thought of like other ways that we could do it. Uh, effectively, you kind of have a model that generates a, a long list of, of words and you sort of need to marginalize across every single time step. And that's really, really slow. So we're like, okay, let's not do that. Let's fudge, fix the documents every time. <laughs> and um, that's where you get one of the formulations from the original RAG paper. Um, the other thing you can do, um, yeah, so that's kind of called RAG. Hmm. token i think it is where you're kind of <laughs> pretending to do that marginalization at, at every token step but you're keeping the documents fixed you're not doing a retrieval 
every token, but you could do. Uh, and then there was the second one called rack sequence, uh, where you do like one marginalization over the sequence. And that's much harder to run inference on. Um, so those are the kind of things that we started out with. And then um, I think driven really by like my, my colleague, uh, um, Gautier and, and Edouard together, they kind of came up with um, other ways of doing this that kind of were a little less um, maybe like theoretically kind of off the shelf, um, but uh, much more flexible, these kind of distillation style approaches where mm. you kind of say, all right, I want to train the uh, generation model. How do I do that? Well, I just need some documents that come from a retrieval system. As long as they're not total garbage, um, you'll learn something <laughs> useful from them. Uh, and so, okay, you need a retrieval system that gets you some documents. You use that plus the input to try and train the model to produce your target output. That's fine. And then you need a way to train the retrieval system. And they basically say, okay, well, let's try and distill out some relevant signals from the language model parts of the system. And that's the high level kind of thing they're saying. We know the language model is capable of giving us some indication of which documents it likes. And we should incentivize the retriever to rank those ones it likes higher. Mm. And there's a lot of different formulations you can do there. Um, and there's some really nice work. I, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. It's probably bad about it, but um, really nice work from, from um, someone, uh, I'll have to look it up afterwards, uh, who <laughs> um, basically like wrote some, some nice like theoretical uh, work, uh, produced a, a new model he was working at at DeepMind on an internship and showed that they're actually quite similar. Um, mm. And there's some math you can do to say that actually those things are more similar than it might seem. Um, but yeah, effectively now I'd say the, the recipe is something like um, have a la language model that conditions quite strongly on documents, use that to obtain signals with which to fine tune a retriever and then iterate between the two. You can also write like interesting EM style algorithms to do the same sort of thing, but usually it kind of comes down to hacking something together that kind of iterates between I'm going to train the retriever for a bit, relevant signals from the generator, and then I'm going to pull out lots of stuff from the retriever and train the generator and kind of go in that, that loop. Um, and so from this perspective, you're no longer really training it end to end. I prefer to think of it as jointly. Um, mm. So you're kind of training these two things at the same time, but, um, and that's kind of nice because in some ways then you can you can almost train them in isolated processes uh, and you don't have to maintain this one gradient flow through two models uh, which can be can be pretty helpful for from an engineering perspective yeah that definitely makes a lot of sense to me that um you know not putting the gradient from the reader directly into the embedding would, it would be easier if you kind of have the signal from the language model then contrastive learning with the embedding model and um uh, so really quickly, I have one more question about, I want to talk about DPR as well and the kind of separate training of the question encoder with the passage encoder, but really quick on this topic. the So for me, what makes end-to-end -end RAG so exciting is the idea of just like one uh, API that does it all for me, right? <laughs> I don't have to, you know, like, um, like where would you say maybe Cohere is at with like, um, you know, kind of like I fine tune a language model and I get an embedding model as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I'd say, um, so we're not 
in my team, we're not directly working on this, but there are, there are plans afoot. Um, we, we're actually almost in our team doing the opposite in a way. We're trying to, we're trying to get a, a, a retrieval augmented generation API where you hook up your retrieval system in the middle and we try and work with whatever you've got. Um, so we want to be robust to maybe weaker retrieval systems or turn-based things. And what we're doing under the hood there is, is, uh, using re-rankers. Um, so we're trying to basically be fault tolerant. We're trying to also get the language model used to what to do in situations where a retrieval has failed. Um, we're also thinking about query reformulation and other kind of like active styles of, of, of multi-hop, uh, retrieval. These things aren't, aren't available yet, but that's kind of what we're working towards is something that will work with whatever you give it. Um, because often like what people really want is to say, I have this retrieval system. It's been there forever. I can't be bothered to wrap it up and rebuild it. You know, bad news for a week. Mate, but, um, um, and uh, they want to kind of, yeah, make it work, you know, and then eventually, you know, you can upsell, um, you know, a really nice uh, dense vector uh, database. Um, yeah. Like, that's that's what I spend a lot of my, like our time kind of thinking about is you know, like um, working with 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 what you come with. Um, but yeah, like when it comes to those relevant signals that come from a language model and that uh, say of like okay, if you know what your system is supposed to do and you have a, a database of stuff, um, yeah, if you have a you have a database of stuff, I I actually it is interesting to 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 see you know whether some direct annotated contrastive training with hard negatives and the kind of older style of supervised uh, stuff will work empirically better than trying to get a language model to give you those relevant signals. Um, I, um, I think it really depends on how hard you want to solve your task uh, and how much like, and, and what I mean by that is like, you obviously want to solve your task, otherwise you wouldn't bother. Um, but is this a task that you can anticipate before? Uh, how long do you have to prepare? And can you annotate? And do you have the operational capacity to annotate a lot with high quality, et cetera, et cetera? Usually, supervising something in domain is going to work best. And so for maybe you know, like really, really intense use cases that you, you kind of business critical for you and your, your kind of table stakes, um, Often the best thing to do is just directly supervise on that over the top of, you know, some pretty good unsupervised retrieval system. But if that use case kind of materializes on the fly, then yeah, you can't do that. And maybe you can you know, use your data more efficiently or you don't have the ability to annotate the middle bit of like put document pairs or document output pairs. Um, and yeah, these kind of end-to-end -end systems can be like a good, like a very good kind of option. Yeah, it's it's super interesting, and it also that also kind of answers the question I had on DPR. So I kind of I think it would be excellent to kind of transition the topics from here into um, so kind of mentioning this kind of like fitting rag onto your database systems. I find this one topic of like an SQL SQL or like a you know a search engine kind of router to be extremely interesting, where you're either like you know you ask the question what's the average age of country music singers, and so you retrieve with an SQL query instead of like vector search. Yeah. How do you think about that kind of like, um, you know, like retrieval tool use? Yeah, I think that's really compelling for the flexibility. 
Um, so that's actually what um, that's actually what we do right now in our team. Um, we follow that kind of paradigm. So if you use Cohere's Retrieval Augmented API, uh, you'll find it kind of comes in two halves. And you can like hook it, hook it up so it goes end to end. But really, there's two calls to a language model going on there. One which figures out what the search queries should be, and soon more general tool API use should be. And the other one which consumes the output of those things. And they're just two large language model calls rather than a kind of dense retrieval call and a large language model call. Um, so you kind of swapped out that like one style of, of thing for another. Uh, that's not to say that you don't need good retrieval systems and the, and the dense retrieval system is dead. That still needs to be there. And, you know, uh, because sometimes you'll call a search engine, sometimes you'll call SQL. Um, but yeah, kind of figuring out what to search uh, is really important, especially as you try and, yeah, you give higher level commands. Like I might say, you know, give me the pros and cons about buying a house at this time of year in the UK in this, in this you know, economic climate. And that's not something I can, I can, I can like produce a query vector <laughs> um, to get documents for. And so I really like those things for you. The flexibility is really important. You can write, yeah, pretty much arbitrary kind of list, like lists of, of queries to do. You can also make some kind of higher level planning and transitioning more to this kind of style of agents, uh, I feel is, is, is the way things are going just because it's just very, very compelling. Dense vector search has a part to play within there. You could also take a step back and say, well, I want a model that can be trained end to end in order to generate tool use calls. And that's a black box. And that could be a retrieval augmented model internally. That's pulling up a, I don't know, a database of, of text, of uh, documentation, all kinds of stuff. Like it could be the docs for how to use all the tools. And that's too much in the context window or something. So like you have these kind of black boxes and like kind of where you draw uh, the, the boundaries around them mean that they're like all kinds of things are possible. Um, but yeah, I would say, you know, having models that don't, don't aren't, aren't constrained to generate one query vector or one query vector followed by another, but can do a very wide, broad output of uh, space of things is pretty important. Um, the other thing to mention there is that if you kind of think a little bit about how well I was describing about how you train this this style of like how we do it in Atlas, where um, you're training this two hops of a model effectively, you're pulling out documents from the retrieval system and you're putting that through the language model, you're producing an output, and you're saying, how good is that? Uh, and you're training um, the models with that signal. Um, that begins to look a great deal like good old RL with a two-hop kind of episode. Uh, so it's in an environment, has the ability, has sort of two models that need to collaborate. So it's almost like multi-agent RL in a way, like collaborative RL. And um, that is a really interesting way to kind of view what these tool use or lang chain, uh, your chains of, of language model inference is doing. It's exactly the same thing. You have chain of models uh, and together they are responsible for producing a good output or not. So you can kind of think of it like a model or a large amount of parameters that performs a few actions, a few hops and gets a signal at the end, how well it did. And RL kind of formulations 
feel like a very natural way of like actually how we should be training these things going forward. And it's still end-to-end in a sense or jointly trained in a sense is that you have these two and they are together collaborating to achieve this goal. Um, They're a little bit less of this kind of like back prop through both models. Yeah, well, I've never thought of uh, comparing a lang chain chain or like agents selecting tools as that kind of like next state action reward kind of transition reinforced learning. And that, that sounds incredibly compelling. And it does sound a little difficult to maintain, maybe. But um, I so so I know that you kind of already started touching on this, but I really wanted to also get your thought. I know it's like multi hop, but I think multi hop is almost like overloaded, whether you mean like choosing tools or you mean like breaking a question into multiple questions. I know you have this really amazing paper called Concurrent QA, which is about uh, public and private information retrieval. I think that topic is just so powerful for like our interest at Weavia as well, because we're curious about like you have your private search database as well as like Google. Maybe just if you don't mind just continuing on this kind of multi-hop perspective. Yeah, for sure. So I can give a kind of summary for the, the readers there. So this was this is what kind of uh, pioneered by an intern I was working with and uh, and um, a supervisor, Jacob Khan. Uh, so this is Simran Aurora, super talented, like a real kind of, um, yeah, like really productive, uh, uh, driven uh, person to work with, really, really great to work with. Uh, and yeah, she's very interested in security uh, and personalization and personal data. And um, yeah, we, we thought about these, these question answering models, these open domain uh, QA models, as we used to call them, and now we call them retrieval augmented generators. Um, and yeah, we were thinking about you know multi-hop stuff and what happens when uh, one database is on de- on you know on device or, or private, and one is public. And we're kind of constraining it, you know, in our in our view to two hops. Uh, so you have this kind of question that comes along. Uh, like you talked about, you know, maybe who is the father of my father is a very simple one. But first, you need to know who is my father. And then you find out that the father is X. And then you have to say, who is the father of X? So these two hops. Uh, and both of them require retrieval over a database. And some of that is private information. Some of that's public. Um, and so in that kind of paradigm where you might need to be mixing information from the public sphere, like pinging the internet, Versus the private sphere, which is, you know, I don't know, referencing your private documentation. Uh, this is where this kind of thing arises. Uh, and we kind of think about what can we do and what can't we do? And to what extent, you know, how, how well can you build models that are privacy preserving? Um, but what we mean by that is like understanding the risks of if you say, um, who is our, like, who is all, um, let me think about this. Um, Who is the father of our new CEO? Maybe we've just decided who our new CEO is. Um, and so you first ping, like, who is our new CEO? And that's not public information. Um, but then you issue a query to the internet saying, who is Patrick Lewis? Just being made CEO. And anyone who happened to be like taking a look at what queries we were issuing to the internet could probably use that information to, to, to do things with. And would find out some leakage of our of our private information. And so, like, we were thinking about these these hops. So we think that like public public is safe. Uh, it's just public information. You were just asking public stuff. Uh, public private uh, also safe. Private private safe. Nothing is going out. Um, 
that there is an issue when you first ask stuff on your private database, receive an answer, and then uh, then go and ask about uh, public stuff. So there's kind of like, you know, if there is anything other than a private call following a private uh, database call, then you have some private uh, problems. So yeah, we were kind of like interested in defining these um, sort of this privacy framework, but then we're also interested in saying, okay, like there's that, you know, offering is, is kind of trying to understand what, I guess what you'd now call this kind of before this became a thing, how, how land chains over um, databases, you know, what, what the privacy kind of model should look like. Uh, but then also saying, okay, we've got a, like an interesting empirical uh, commercially relevant question, uh, like it, like modeling kind of paradigm to work through, which is maybe it's really useful to know, to know who the father of our CEO is, <laughs> or, or you know, there's more practical things that you could probably come up with. Um, to say, okay, it is really compelling to try and take public information and cross-reference that against private information um, and produce models that do kind of can be hooked up to several uh, kind of information sources, some of them private, some of them personal, some of them public, and what you can achieve by hooking up these different things and hop and the model hopping over the different ones, routing queries to different databases. And so what we were doing there was building this, this sort of set of, of data to kind of study that problem, how well you can navigate that, um, and how well you can care, fuse information across these different sources. Uh, so yeah, it was kind of like two, two offerings in that paper. Yeah, that already just completely expanded my perspective. I hadn't thought about the privacy preserving angle of it. I was just kind of thinking about like uh, searching across multiple indexes. Like if I have one index of books and then one index of like podcasts and it's like one query for the books, one query for the podcast and then combining the queries that way. Do you, do you also like that kind of just thinking about like, um, you know, symbolically structuring your indexes with some kind of high level category and then sort of multi-hop maybe like that exact example of I search in, you know, papers as well as say like podcasts to try to like combine. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like that. So, um, I think we, yeah, consider like, you know, if for, so before you used to have some, you know, if you had this end to end kind of powerful QA system, you'd have all these modules, uh, they'd look at your, your query and they'd do some query intent and then there'd be a semantic parser. And then for the combination of the query intent and the semantic parser, you would maybe route it to, one database, you'd execute that query and then you take those results and you do something else with another model. Now we're kind of looking at the, the situation like East Echo here where uh, you'd basically provide the entire schema uh, to the model and hook it up and say, here are the, here's what you're working with. Uh, route some queries uh, <laughs> or like route some API calls and figure it out for yourself. And kind of, um, yeah, that kind of thing of saying like, oh, here, here is the stuff. We can arrange the stuff in, as you say, kind of like ways which are convenient uh, for the LM. Um, and I think that's something we'll maybe pick up on in a minute. It's like figure out the ways which are convenient for an LM to have information structured in a in a kind of yeah in a in a way where you say All right here is our database of papers, here is our database of this and that um, emails, uh, and here are the ways you can query for emails, and they may be different to the way that you'd query for. Um, papers, um, but you kind of show the LM in its input, all of the, uh, all of those things, and then say, okay, now you're going to route uh, a, a VV8 uh, API call uh, to 
papers with the following fields uh, or maybe a date range or something. Um, and it can kind of figure out what it should populate. So it's kind of doing all of that work internally for you. So it's doing that query intent, it's doing that routing and it's doing that semantic parsing all in one go um, and producing that and sort of routing that to your different, like to the, the things that you've got together in this big multi-index as it were, kind of meta search engine uh, as another kind of term for this. Hmm. Um, I wanted to quickly pick up on, on, on something that I think you're hinting at as well uh, is how should we structure our multi-index for an LM to use? Hmm. And I don't have a good answer for that other than an observation that I see a, sh a shift happening maybe commercially um, in that for a very long time, we've built APIs for programmers to use and maybe also, you know, like other kind of computer systems to talk to each other. Uh, but we have never been building APIs for large language models to use. Hmm. And the designs are subtly different, I think. And so there'll be a whole host of offerings, I think, of um, companies that are kind of designing tools for LLMs, effectively say so like, this is an optimal LLM calculator or, and so yeah. on. Like what should the, it's not just sort of what the input signature looks like. So the LLM finds it easy to use and low, you know, low effort, like doesn't get the parsing or you know, doesn't, doesn't produce an unparsable input. Um, but also what the output looks like, you know, how much context to include, how much of a stack trace or other things that would help it do chain of thought reasoning if it was to like read the output of that tool. So I kind of see like a really interesting opportunity there for like, uh, in all sorts of domains, building the tool the LLM wants. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of like the gorilla large language model works, which is kind of like, um, you use like self-instruct data prompting to like come up with a natural language command of when you would want to invoke an API and then you fine tune a language model to pick the right API and, I think with Weaviate, it's really fascinating because um, that it's like in, instead of doing the open AI function calling approach, where you're going to try to describe the arguments to all the functions in like this dictionary, mm -hmm. if you instead have this like just natural language template that describes the tool and then it can do a natural language command and then you have this like uh, compressed model that's like a parser in the middle, I see it as like also being more efficient. So, so maybe if I could quickly get your opinion on that, what do you think about like... Uh, you know, a 1 billion parameter model that's just specialized on, say, uh, text to SQL. And then the, the most powerful model just has a description of the kind of APIs you can use, uh, the kind of uh, queries you can use with API, uh, sorry, SQL, and then yeah, yeah. sends it to the parser. Um, no, I think that's, that's also, yeah, like very uh, compelling. I think often my, my sense on these things is um, you've got to work the problem. Uh, so it's like, what are you trying to achieve? And what is your cost tolerance and what is your latency tolerance and that sort of thing. So like, what's the best system? It's the most powerful model being used in as many ways as possible. Uh, uh, from the perspective of like, you know, the quality, uh, what is the best system from something you want to ship or use or experiment with? It's definitely not that. Um, so uh, yeah, you know, bringing models down to make them as small as possible such that they can achieve some part of the wider kind of goal is, is really compelling. And so the higher level uh, 
playbook that I see from a lot of places, uh, which is really compelling, is take the most powerful model that you can get, which is GPT-4, uh, and use it to annotate some in-domain data for you. And you've got some super light data. And then fine-tune it for your task at hand. And then you've got a smaller model, probably a small llama, and uh, it is good. and. At no point have you touched a real annotator, which is very, very quick and efficient and easy to kind of dev on. Um, and that's just really compelling. And you can you can repeat that playbook everywhere you want. Um, I should be, you know, bigging up Cohere's models here. So like Cohere has some good models. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, amazing. And yeah, so I, I fully agree with you on that. I, I also find that to be really, really exciting. Um, you, you mentioned another thing that really transitions into one of your papers. I really want to get your thoughts on as well as what you are, what are you trying to achieve? Taskware retrieval with instructions. I, I, I love this kind of like you're searching like, you know, the Cora duplicate question data set where you're searching to find another question, not necessarily the answer to the question. So could you kind of tell the story of this uh, Taskware yeah, retrieval? Absolutely. This one's kind of near to my heart. Um, it's funny because like we did the rag paper and then, um, I started saying like retrieval has two arguments, uh, there's the query and then there's the task context. I can't remember what a word I used. I think I used context or something, um, or instruction or, you know, whatever, whatever I was using. And I was, I was saying this quite early on and I was frustrating my advisor. So Sebastian Riedel, um, we had some debates about this and he was kind of like, no, that's kind of like just a redefinition of what the query is. Um, and like relevance is more global than that. Um, anyway, uh, we kind of, I was like, yeah, there is two things. And, um, I was really interested in, in that as, as he was. And we kind of, um, thought about it and then shelved the idea for ages. Uh, and then it's just sort of before, uh, instruction following was really a thing. Um, and it turns out that what we were talking about was effectively a really similar thing to an instruction following paradigm, um, except it was an instruction following retrieval model. The analogy I used to, used to, to argue about here was like, I'd have, you know, I'd be in a, in a library, for example. And, uh, if I was using the computer system to search for what I was looking for, I would use a query. And if I was talking to the librarian, I would say what I was doing, what the information was for that I was retrieving for. Uh, I would explain the task context. I would, you know, I, and and then I would say what my query was. Um, and so there's this whole sense of like you don't just retrieve in a vacuum. You you want to retrieve things. Again, these aren't new ideas, but it's kind of like it was a bit zeitgeisty then. Anyway, we 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 didn't do anything for it for ages and ages and ages, and then. Um, Akari Isai came and did an internship with our uh, group and we kind of were like, hey, this is the time to, to hit that. Uh, and so, yeah, um, that was kind of yeah, one of the papers that was looking at that and trying to figure out, you know, how should we should do that? And then like loads of papers came out at once and all kind of you're doing the same thing. So like thought about this in 2019 or 2020 and then when you do it in 2022, all the papers come out. It was, it was a little bit late, but um, yeah, very compelling concept where yeah you want to basically have more fine-grained control of what you're retrieving you want to tune your notion of what relevance is in a zero shot way 
by explaining it. Um, and that paper was basically about that, saying like, okay, I want to do retrieval, but I'm doing it for the following reasons. And you could define that in instructions. You could also define that as a few short examples of what a relevant example looked like. Um, and that system is very useful. It's a very, very useful thing. Uh, and it turns out what we found at the time was dense models really struggled. Um, so a pure dense model at, at the time couldn't, couldn't do this well. Rerankers could do it relatively well. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that we, I don't think we did this, but a large language model that was refining what the query should look like, taking that task instruction would also do a really good job. And I'm sure plenty of people have demonstrated that since. Yeah, when I so when I was looking at it, I saw I, I think the re-ranking thing works quite strongly. Again, re-ranking for people listening is uh, you take the query in the candidate document and you apply a high capacity score to it. So if you describe kind of the search intent as well as the query, you can re-rank it really accurately that way. Um, but so so this kind of language model to reformulate the query, I also find that to be really fascinating. Um, but I'm also curious, like, um, is there a way to put the intent directly in the embedding or something like that to have? Yeah, this... I think I think so. I, I'm sure if that I tend to think of ways to do these things, then I go to the literature and find plenty of examples. Um, you can imagine. So I think what what I had wanted to do uh, when I first started talking about this was have a um, you know fairly normal dense embedding space for for the content. And then a uh, modifier, like kind of extra dimensions uh, that you might concatenate along, uh, that would you could hook into for certain kind of yeah uh, intent kind of modifiers. Um, and so maybe you train two models, one that embeds normally and one that embeds a kind of re-ranky style uh, like signal. Uh, that would be specifically trying to attack that like long tail relevance. So you say you found your top, depending on the size of your database, your top 200. And actually, you now need to map from your top 200 to your top five. And that extra few dimensions can be the difference. Um, so this kind of why I was thinking about this. And I was it was a time I was really into in ensembles and dense retrieval models. I have a paper that, that no one read called Boosted Dense Retriever. Um, that that kind of looks at that and it's not a very practical system, but kind of an interesting one um, that gets to that kind of notion. So I think you definitely can embed these things into embeddings. Um, I think the difficulty is uh, is potentially figuring out what like embed like how to embed that is is challenging, especially if it's in isolation. So you kind of have this decomposability gap thing um, that that people talk about. Maybe with like you know newer multi-vector models, uh, the kind of Colbert, Colbert style or whatever's come more recently. Probably you're, you're much better at this because you need some, you might need a bit more of a rich interaction um, depending on, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know too much about the Colbert. I mean, this might be like a dumb version of it, but I can imagine the idea like a really popular thing with Weaviate is the hybrid search where you have like BM25 and vector search and then you do like a rank fusion or a score yeah. fusion and I can imagine having like eight different phrasings of the query to to search and then some kind of fusion of that also working kind of well. Yeah, no, for sure. I think so. Um, yeah, just that, all, all, all kind of different variants of uh, relevance being a kind of complex product of, of like several different models, not complex, but a, a product of 
of several different models, some of which are kind of doing the, the good old fashioned turn-based relevance, some of which are doing something a little bit more learned and nuanced hmm. and some doing something a bit more kind of instruction following based. Um, yeah, I think there's kind of ways to attack all of those things. Yeah, yeah, super cool. So I want to kind of hit you with a couple of quick ones and then, you know, an anchoring question being mindful of time. So uh, I another paper, this whole edit eval peer kind of looking at the editing of text instead of just the generation. I've always found that to be really fascinating. Do you mind giving a quick like um, overview of that? Yeah, sure. So this is kind of work actually driven by some of my my ex-colleagues, I guess, at, at, at Facebook. So credit goes to Timo um, and Jane, uh, who, who kind of led those two papers, I guess, respective, respectively. Um, but yeah, really interesting stuff. So it's kind of based on the observation. It's like humans don't write in the way that large language models do. Uh, you ask a large language model to write a blog post and out will come the stream, uh, you know, there it is, <laughs> kind of like, thing. Um, humans tend to write in a hierarchical way with a great deal of revision and editing in the middle. Um, and the intent there was to basically say, okay, let's, let's, let's mimic that process of like how, how humans uh, write. So they'll write something, they'll maybe write the plan, uh, so plan, edit, repeat, peer, um, and uh, yeah, you'll find a kind of say, all right, first lay out the structure of a document we're going to run, like maybe the, the titles or like the rough ideas behind each paragraph. And then you're going to say, go and uh, fill out the first section and then have a look at how you did and be like, oh, I made a mistake. Uh, so go and fix that mistake. Uh, and then kind of repeatedly calling this language model to iterate over this document and kind of grow it out. And so peer was a model that attacked that uh, task and edit eval as a suite that kind of evaluates that, that kind of paradigm um, and looking at how different models can kind of do that and how kind of repeated application of maybe a smaller model can reach the individual kind of zip, like one shot uh, um, or like one forward pass of, of a bigger model and kind of interesting um, trade-offs that you might see there. So, um, how you might how you might do that and how you know maybe a language model would be much more effectively applied if it is iteratively kind of um drafting a document with you um and yeah we were we were kind of working towards a kind of demo of of something like a google doc where the model would would put in um edit suggestions at the side like your kind of editor would like someone suggesting changes and the model would suggest changes and you would kind of together draft this thing. So a model could play the role of um, the planner, uh, the editor, or um, yeah, the executor, I guess, or the, the executor of the plan. Um, or a human could play one of those roles and you kind of collectively would collaborate to produce this, this document. But yeah, um, those ones are kind of, I, I was helping a little bit, but mostly Jane and Timo and, and uh, Sebastian uh, Riedel kind of um, uh, research lead of the group uh, were, were the kind of main people driving that. Yeah, amazing. I, I thought it was such an exciting paper. And it, to me, that's kind of like the genius of Langchain is kind of like coming up with these plans sort of where the LLM is like a, just a compute unit in one part of it. And I love that you mentioned that you could have a specialized model and checking for uh, 
paraphrases and maybe that's a 50 million parameter model or like arbitrarily chosen that yeah. or, or like um this idea of um at one step you come up with like five continuations and ask for human input i know that's one of the lang chain things and that yeah all that's super exciting so um patrick i've already i've already learned so much from the podcast there's so many exciting directions for the future already but let me ask this question that i always try to like end podcast with is like um you know what what on the horizon is exciting you the most um yeah, that's 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 a great question. So um, I think I am I'm interested in language agents, as is you know a lot of people are, but yeah, effectively kind of an agent, and within it is a language model kind of powering how it works. But effectively, you know, models that have a a memory uh, and go out and research things in the world and achieve kind of intellectual effort for people. Uh, and kind of will, I think it's going to unlock very interesting things. So there's like, there's dangers here, uh, aware of those, uh, need to mitigate those, but um, kind of automated researchers, uh, giving people the ability to kind of do clear-headed analysis, research, uh, understand things, build kind of uh, grounded attributable kind of um, documents, through the kind of process of of research which involves kind of formulating hypotheses going out acquiring evidence uh reformulating a hypothesis and at some point saying i have done my research i'm going to write up uh agents that can kind of um mimic that process is the kind of a thing that i'm excited about uh, for the next maybe year or two yeah, well, we also love that idea and we're calling it uh, generative feedback loops to describe like the generative model feeding data back into the database and this kind of loop. And so I'm curious, do you like that term? And if so, could you please write another viral paper? That <laughs> it's funny, it's, it's quite similar to one of the ways I described this before we kind of started to work on it. It was a, an autoregressive research loop. Uh, so it's almost the same. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it, it's good. Um, and I, I like the idea of a model, I guess this is a, a slight tangent, um, managing its own context window, which is effectively part of this process. So you say like it has a, an ex a memory, it can write to it and take things out. And if its memory maps to its context window, uh, you can kind of think of it as a model that kind of um, looks after its own context and kind of has a working memory that it's in charge of, which I think is also a really fascinating concept. Um, but yeah, like certainly models that write to a database and kind of build up this uh, more long-term memory is is really cool, uh, for sure. Like kind of taking notes as it goes, uh, fascinating stuff. Yeah, I've been fascinated in that, uh, like in that MemGPT paper where it's about like, uh, what do I add to, I've, I've done like a, a search and now it's like, what do I add to my working context? As yeah. well as trying to blend that, what do I write to my long-term context? So trying to get that right has been, yeah, yeah, amazing. Okay. Yeah. These are really, really great. Yeah. Patrick, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I can't tell you how much, um, you know, your retrieval augmented generation paper back in 2019, I was still in, in school and watching it just like profoundly changed my understanding of deep learning. It's such an honor to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was great to be here.